0: All right, we're back, Sunset Sound Roundtable. The date is March 10th, 2022. It's actually our first roundtable in the new year. We're joined today by an amazing engineer, sound designer, Sunset employee of the past, Mr. Bill Jackson. Thank you. You're welcome. And Mr. Matthew Batone, who I never know how to describe because he wears so many hats from photographer, uh, my personal life coach uh design how many albums have you designed oh i
1: don't know a Uh, a lot a A thousand i think i mean by now maybe including like compilations and stuff i would say a thousand now wow i think i tried to do a discography it didn't go too well but i got to like 850 about (laughs) five years ago so
0: you did the marvin gay uh
1: a lot of like the deluxe editions and you know obviously i was too young when marvin was around but same with Miles Davis, but yeah, I've gotten to do like amazing box sets and Marvin Gaye, "What's Going On" 40th anniversary, which now is the 50th anniversary. Wow! Uh,
0: but you're also Dave Chappelle's photographer for last eight years, ten years, six maybe six years, and you have the coolest Instagram story ever at Candy Tea Man. Anybody, anytime I have something to ask about Prince or need to know something, the text goes to you because you are a complete Prince historian and you've consulted on numerous things, but you just are a super fan ever since you yeah, grew up in yeah. Paris. Yeah,
1: yeah, so, He was the greatest, is, and was the greatest.
0: The premise of this show is to bring back the engineers, the producers that worked on these amazing sessions and tell the stories back in the room. So that's why we got a hold of Mr. Jackson and had him come back in. Now, I've got some... Uh, Fun behind-the-scenes stories to hit you with, but oh boy, you started in 1980 as a runner at 81 March 81, and you were doing you were a runner at Sunset Sound plus our other studio, Sunset Sound Factory. Yes, which we have just three runners for this. We have like five runners for this studio now. So to think you were doing two studios as one was probably pretty insane. So
2: you know they bought the Sound Factory, yeah, and uh, so my life doubled. (laughs) It's like. In 80 well, now you we didn't have, get a double salary. Let me. Now, <laughs> now we have five rooms instead of three. Yeah, but it was it was great.
0: It was all great right. having that place. Uh, Bill Robinson hired you, who was such an important part of Sunset Sound because he designed our echo chambers, but he mm-hmm. also worked at Capitol. Yep. And then he came over here to manage Sunset Sound, and designed all three echo chambers here, which we still use today. We're actually right below Studio Three Echo Chamber. Did he interview you? Did you apply here? Did you know
2: somebody? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And Bill, I think the folding wall ornaments in Studio Two, he did that same kind of thing at Capitol. And wow. so when he came here, he put those soft side, hard side things up in two and really turned it into a great room. Yeah. He knew fun a lot fact. about audio and sound. Yeah. But, you know, I was, um, I, I moved to California to go to a recording school for a year. That's what got me out here in San Francisco. The guy that ran that studio, it was a studio school, uh, knew Leo. I mean, his name was Leo. He knew Bill yeah. Robinson so from way back. Mm-hmm. And when we got to the end of the one-year term of the school, I went up to his office and said, "I, I want to get down to L.A., before the other 35 people in the class go. I said, I've done everything I need to do. I'm just helping other people on their projects. I finished early. You can ask the teachers. I just want to go down there and get a job before they do. He says, oh, that's very smart. This is Leo, who ran the school. So while I was talking to him, he was writing. So he wrote three letters and put them in envelopes, sealed them. I never know what they said, but one was to Sunset Sound. For Bill so I tested it out on two other the other two places and they were kind of a dead-end anyway and uh, because this is really this is where I wanted to work I didn't care how long it took this is the place and so I walked up and to the traffic window off the parking lot there and uh, the traffic manager what do you want "Uh, I'd like to um, see Bill Robinson And, uh, no, what do you, what do you really want? I said, well, I've got a resume. No, we're not taking your resumes. like, um, and I see somebody in the background, like walking away. And it was him. He was going to his office because I just said, can you tell him that Leo de Garakulka sent me? And so the phone rang. She said, okay, go on back. So that one connection of that school and the guy that ran it is the only reason that I'm here. Uh-huh. Because I dropped that name and got in. And I didn't realize it because, you know, where I'm from, I, nobody wanted to do this job. And uh, Why would you not want to do the job? You get in at a studio. Nobody, even... nobody, where I, you know, I'm from a little town in South Carolina. Nobody knew anything about records or how they were made, really, And, and where I came from. Yeah. People thought I was crazy to move away. So, uh, you know, I just, I didn't care, you know, what it took to do it. I wanted to do it. and But I had no idea that all these other people were trying to do it until I started working here. And every day, at least six or seven people would drop off their resumes at that same window I went to. And there was no job for them because I had just taken it. And I was like, wow, this is actually a desirable position, you know, but...
0: Still to this day, I mean, even with social media, I get blasted every day with resumes and people just begging to do an internship or something. I mean, it's the magic of this place. It's like, as you know.
1: The biggest cliche is uh, if these walls could talk, but this is the one place where I'm like, man, I wish these walls could talk.
2: at least we have Bill to talk. Yeah, so, you know, and Bill hired me uh, a year later because it was kind of a slump. This was in the 80s when I was trying to get in. And I'd called places like the record plant and they, they were laughing over the phone. We just let go all of our runners. There's, it was like just a little slump that was happening and then everybody knew it was going to go away. So I just stuck it out yeah. and I called every month and then nope, not yet I'm calling for a, almost a year. And then yeah. I just showed up one morning and called Bill at like eight in the morning. Cause I knew he came in early. He says, what what are you doing in town? Do you have friends? I said, I don't have any friends here. I just want to know if I'm the guy that you're going to hire when you <laughs> actually hire somebody. He said, yeah, it's going to be you. Cause he wouldn't tell me before oh. that. So I went back and then in March of 81, they called and then I came down. And so, you know, Bill, he was great for the little time. I worked with him.
0: When you come back here in 2022, What's it feel like? Is it super special? Is it nostalgia? You said when you walked in, he goes, it smells exactly
2: the same. (laughs) It does.
1: When's the last time you were in here?
2: Working in here? Probably. That's a good question. A long time ago. 30, 40 years. It would have been probably the... It could have been the early 90s. Okay.
0: I want to dive into a couple amazing sessions, and I don't want to go (laughs) right to Prince, but... We did this tribute for She's Always in My Hair where we had this super group come in of Carmen Vandenberg and Sean Hurley, and we recreated this song, which I love, but you were the engineer on that session, and it was such a fluke occurrence because Peggy McCreary, who generally worked with Prince here in this room and somewhat in Studio 2, she was out sick or she was gone, and you were assisting and you got bumped up to work with the most legendary artist ever, in my opinion.
2: Yeah, it was like, I mean, I literally was running, doing gopher work, and then I think in some time that day, they said, oh, and you're working with Prince tonight. I'm like, what?
1: How is that? What, what's that Where's like? Piggy? At that at that age, at that time, what's your reaction? It's yeah. like... Panic?
2: Terrified. Yeah. It's like... That would be... You know, th- the only interaction... I, I had a little interaction with him, it's like, uh, go to the... 7-Eleven on Santa Monica, and they have a jar of Famous Amos cookies right by the cash register. And don't just take the one on the top. Make sure it has at least three chocolate chips showing, and give me two or three of those. You know, that that was like, oh, yes, sir. You know, well, wow. <laughs> like, yeah, but uh, I already forgot the question. <laughs> <laughs> what was it
1: like <laughs> just being told
2: that it was that kind of like, gonna he's going to kill Prince me today. if I don't bring him back the right cookies. And now I'm here and,
1: and this is 1983 at this point. Right? Yeah. Yeah.
2: And, and I have no time to mentally prepare because, and, I, and then, you know, the next morning I'm back doing the inventory on the mics and running errands for people until he comes back. You know, but they didn't just immediately replace me. There was nobody. Yeah. You know,
0: uh, I mean that so, happens today with covid people are out and then even Fruk over here is uh, But, but
1: knowing how Prince was and how he was used to working with Peggy did he oh. give you did he give you a lot of attitude like like you no. didn't know you know what I mean like you didn't know if you could do he it He
2: figured or? if I was in there it you was were probably that, yeah. okay but he only spoke one word at a time Right Base Oh I'll go get to base like he had rented a neutron biphase. Like and it didn't work. It did, and, and I have pedals. More, I know, I know panic, about right? pedals. And it really was not working. I'm like, he's gonna this is it. You know, he's gonna think it should be working. And so he, he finally gives up. We even got the guy we rented it from, you know, the rental place to come over at SIR or whatever, and he said, Oh yeah, it's messed up. And so he didn't want to wait. So he goes to the guitar and uh, try didn't something like else. he waiting
0: on anything. If Peggy um, took more than 5 seconds to get a sound, he said she said he would flip out.
2: Right. so I'm already nervous cuz the first thing he tried to do didn't work. He tried something else and I don't even remember what the problem was, but we worked for a little bit and it just something wasn't right equipment-wise again. And I'm thinking this is undone. Right. I should have just said no <laughs> and I could have kept my job here. <laughs> And we left early. We only worked a few hours that first day and recorded essentially nothing. And uh, so I thought, okay, well, it, best case, I'll never see him again. And uh, I was surprised when they told me the next day, okay, you're back with Prince tonight. I'm like, did he say that? <laughs> you passed a test. I'm not sure. And he literally, one word, work order. Uh, what song should we put? And he just uh, said something, like that, and that was it. So, yeah. it, but then it went into a, a, a month or so with him.
0: Yeah, it was do you remember though, was it the first tracking session, She's Always in My Hair, or the development of that song? Because he had written it the night before and then came in and tracked it, played every instrument on it.
2: Written yeah. on
1: Le Park Hotel stationery. Yes, I don't Stationary. remember Hotel, if Park.
2: that's what we were trying to work on at the very beginning, or if it was a the next week, okay. unless you would have some documentation about it,
0: we, we can look at the work order in a minute. Matthew, where was La Park Hotel in LA? Right
2: there in uh, you know like Beverly West
1: Hills, West Hollywood. It's obviously right, closed now, right? Still there? It's still I around? I think it's still yeah, there. Just, Actually, I checked it out. Yeah, I stayed there a couple of times. Yeah, it later used to on. Be like I, I worked with Lenny Kravitz for a long time. Was, you know, talked to him yesterday actually. We he I think they used to stay there too in the beginning. They used to be like a like kind of rock and roll hotel. The prices were right. Yes. It was and, a cool uh, place to stay. Yeah.
0: So he'd be out from Minneapolis for three, four months and they just put him up there at Warner Brothers.
1: Yeah, close you know, not far yeah. to get here. And um Yeah, and it kind of developed a legendary status just from all the people that stayed there. What's
0: you know? so astonishing though is that was your First, I was going to ask you, what was your first big session? And I didn't know it was Prince. So you went from getting coffee to working with Prince. And this yeah. is pre-Purple Rain, so he's not the gigantic right. megastar. But he's still he such a force. He already had
1: Little Red Corvette in 1999. So he was big already. He he's just big. hadn't become the superstar he became with Purple Rain.
0: Yeah. So you guys do four hours. He says bass, very doesn't talk much at all. And what what did he work on? Just a few different instruments, laying, just simple tracking?
2: Some simple stuff, and if I remember correctly, we came in, obviously, the next night, and the next night. and
0: He wanted to work at night always, huh?
2: It started that way. and Then it got to where we were just working all day and night sometimes. But um, I didn't know what we were working on at the time. Nobody ever did. But about the second or third day, a young woman walks in, and you've seen how big that console is. It's not very wide. She sits right beside me at the console. Doesn't say a word. And he's out here, because like, I, when I started working with him, he was doing everything out here except for uh, you know, drum machine kind of stuff. If, if he was using a mic, he was out here, vocals or whatever. So we were recording stuff. We had laid down some things with the, the, the Oberheim. and the, you know, He would start with the Lindrum, and then we'd do the Oberheim. Then you put a bass on, usually in that order. I was like, why don't you do the bass second? But, you know, it worked. You know, who am I to say? (laughs) So she's sitting there. and She's there for hours and hours, maybe around lunchtime. Um, He takes a little break, and they talk in this area, you know, kind of between, you know, where the rooms connect. And um, she goes away. And I'm just still terrified. (laughs) Not even looking at it. No. Like... I don't know why you're here. I'm not even gonna. I can't be distracted. You know, we're you know, working. So had, pre- had people told you about how he was in the studio? Had Peggy gave you a heads a up bit. or like, yeah, don't fuck I, up or I yeah, I kind of knew it. So the next day, comes back in, sits right beside me at the console, and and uh, I remember she's wearing like a, a white t-shirt, jeans, and kind of a bit of a fro. And uh, so a couple hours go by. And I just look over at her, I said, um, are you a friend of Prince? I said, oh, uh, yes, we, I, we know each other. Um, yeah. uh, and I'm sort of like, uh, okay, so you're just here to visit? She says, oh, well, uh, he came to a show I was doing, uh, sent some flowers, and, uh, and then we, we, you know, we got to know each other, so he invited me down to the studio. I'm like, okay. Uh, what kind of show was that? Well, and she said it in this order. I dance, sing, and play percussion for Lionel Richie. And he oh. came to that show. I'm like, okay. Still don't know really who she is. And then she goes away. And so around the time of the next few days, I realize we're doing the Sheila E. record. Right. <laughs> I had no idea. And... So, you know, he's putting on the tracks. And so when he was doing vocals, he was putting down the guide vocals, you know, for the song. So she knew, you know, what to sing along to. And, uh, and that's what we worked on mostly for the next couple of weeks, if Whoa. I remember correctly. And that's- what's
1: incredible about those guide vocals or those demos, whatever you want to call them, is Prince never really did like halfway he recorded oh. it as if he was about to put the song out that's literally why I, said, I like, thought yeah erase all these vocals now Sheila's gonna yeah. sing but she's got to sing it exactly like his guide vocal and that's one of the amazing things if you talk you know like Jill Jones the other people you hear um how hard it was sometimes to do like the same exact thing but he wanted them to do it exact right exactly yeah.
2: and, and which is literally why I thought we were working on his album you know it's I mean that's amazing like you know that's the thing and it, it, it ended up uh, to the point where we were doing some other things. Like I, uh, I think I would mentioned earlier to you privately that we did an accordion. And then we also had a harpist come in. But, uh, you know, with Prince, it was like 10, 10.30 at night, which is like just noon for him, right? <laughs> uh, need a harp. Okay. Harp, harp, harp. Okay, so I go up to the office. I get the union book. I find a few people to play harp. I go, this name sounds good. Call them up. Probably woke them up. I said, uh, uh, can you come down to Sunset Sound for a session to play harp? Oh, okay. So about 20 minutes later, this van pulls up. It's like, uh, like a church would have or something. <laughs> <laughs> and this... Uh, Man and this woman are pulling this harp out the back, and uh and she was way older. She's like probably older than I am now. And I was thinking, I hope this works out, you know. And I helped them get into the room, and she we set the harp up right over there. And it was one of the songs. It has a harp on it. You could probably figure it out. And so he tells her what he wants to, her to do it's just, just kind of like a you know, thing and so we roll the tape going to record and she does her thing and now rewind he says something else to her no more of this more of that you know record again stop lady it ain't killing me and she was uh, she was petrified like Like, what did I get into? Why am I here? So he says, uh, That's it. So I helped them, you know, kind of get the harp out. And uh, I said, Don't worry, you're going to get paid. It just, you know, (laughs) it'll be fine. (laughs) And then he says, Give me a harp. So we rent a harp, put it right there. And he just goes, "Mm," like to hear what the strings do. He says, Okay, hit record. And he plays the part.
1: Wow.
0: Jesus, Yep. that's what Peggy said also like he wanted strings for purple ring overdubs and it was 2 30 in the morning and he got really pissed when the first call didn't uh, answer <laughs> He's like I need strings now get them and then they, they showed up Yeah um, when, when he was you know mov- maneuvering around the room then tracking everything did he have a little handheld tape recorder? Because sometimes he'd sit down in there and hum out the parts before if you saw a bass drums piano out here he'd hum out the bass Stop it! Then bring his tape recorder up. Had you heard that that he would do that
1: mm-hmm. a lot? Yep, I've seen. Yeah. the tape I didn't notice that. Oh, I seen? mean, it might have not been throughout the whole, you know, every session. But yeah. yeah, I don't
2: think he did that, or if he did, it wasn't very much. I think I would have remembered. I've heard that a lot of writing about that and people telling stories. I mean, he would arrange it
0: in his head, knew the groove, and then he didn't want to forget it, so he'd do it one by one and then go to the drums, listen to it, okay, and then try it.
2: Yeah, get- I don't. Remember. What I do remember is you know set up the Lindrum and he would just play it. And then that was it, you know, and, and then we'd set up bass. He'd play it. Everything was basically one take. Yeah. I mean, I think everything was one take. And so I don't remember him stopping to think about anything or to check something ever.
1: Yeah, that part doesn't sound right that he would like while he cut. But I, could, but I have seen and heard recordings of him like humming melodies. But I would imagine that's like, OK, on the way to the studio, he's listening to it. So he remembers. What A lot of writers do with. that. Yeah, sure. most yeah. artists I've worked with do that, you know. Just so you don't forget a melody or a little guitar part or something like
2: that.
0: So you guys, the first thing you're working on then, obviously, is the Sheila E. record.
2: Apparently. Yeah. Yeah. How long was she in studio for? Well, so it was uh, off and on for about a month. And then, and we were working on other stuff too in that month. But Peggy came back and he was still working on it. So I, he would
0: jump around on projects? Like he would jump Two days, she'd
2: then come up with some
0: other idea. Yeah. And was there somebody that was with him, an assistant ever, that would kind of coordinate Oh, yeah, him? no, he had, he
1: had many assistants. I mean, around that time, it was probably, you know, there was uh, Karen Katringer, Therese Doolittle. They were probably, you know, in the 80s. Uh,
0: Why do you think he would jump from project to project? Because I mean, he working... just couldn't
1: contain himself. I think he just was, you know, he yeah. had too much going on in his head. He wanted to get it all down
0: yeah and he might get bored with working with the she lee album and then want to switch over to
1: you think of that you know that 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 time of like 82 with the time vanity six you know the 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 triple threat tour they called it you know the time prince vanity six and then he's you know starts working on all these other projects and the the family and the maseratis and the jill jones and you know i mean they just had so many bands many like uh the hookers you know that that most people have never heard of can we talk
0: about the hookers what can you explain? Who the hookers were?
1: I mean, as far as I know, I've seen pictures. Questlove actually owns the negatives from from an, uh, an auction. I was a little jealous at that, but you know, the, he recorded. He cut an album. It's it's basically the pre-Vanity Vanity Six. You know, with Susan Jill Jones, UNC. Brenda Bennett. I don't think Jill Jones was part of that band. Jill Jones, I think, was she sang on a lot of his stuff. She, you know, he recorded a lot of amazing stuff with her. Uh, you know that. Jill Jones 87 album on Paisley Park I think it's still my favorite Prince production really? of a Paisley Park album uh you know The Family as well but uh so the Hookers it was Susan and moonsea and her sister Loreen oh, and wow. Jamie Shoop who was Prince's assistant and then he replaced uh Laureen with Brenda and then Vanity came in but they had cut a bunch of tracks for the Hookers at sunset did the photo shoot I don't know if, uh, you know, I, I, I'd have to research that a little bit. Yeah. Um, but because, you know, not a lot is known about, you know, those sessions. Uh, they're very pornographic, apparently. Uh, <laughs> there's a called Eros. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I think uh, it was like the concept came from that. And then it became Vanity 6 and became Apollonia 6, you know. Yeah, and, uh, he wanted a girl group. He always, yeah, He always wanted girl groups, yeah. And I think, you know, he was touring, he had just toured with Rick James, the Mary Jane Girls. I think, you know, he wanted to have his own Mary Jane Girls, you know. So
0: So the Hookers turned into Vanity 6. Vanity 6 turns into Apollonia 6 with yeah, all I mean, the I same think, members.
1: Yeah, basically, you know, you had Susan Moonsee and Brenda Bennett were the consistent.
0: He was dating Susan Moonsee when he came in here cuz Peggy said that was his girlfriend yeah. at the time. Yeah. And yeah, then, yeah. I mean, well he dated everybody, but
1: I think he uh yeah. He was a professional dater, I think. And he, you know, he, he had, uh, what always amazed me about him. I certainly wouldn't be alive if I tried to do something like that, but you know, he would have the girlfriend and then he meets a new girlfriend. So the new girlfriend becomes the lead singer and the last girlfriend becomes the background <laughs> singer. I mean, you know, I'm French and I don't even do that. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's pretty amazing.
0: Do you remember guests that were coming in at that time? I mean, it was mostly just you and Prince for that month, the, or was there
2: like in the beginning? There was really nobody else except you know like Shield coming in and whoever we called to come in. Uh, but then we had moved over to Studio Two, and uh, and then a lot of people started coming over, and it yeah. was all of these people you've like been naming, and I don't, I didn't recognize who was who at the time, but. Uh, You know, part of some of the girl group people and Morris and different people were coming in.
0: So, like a week or two in, it was just you, him, or you, him, and Sheila, E. But then it was like the revolution, the time came in. Were they, was the revolution jamming with him at that point? Right before Purple Rain, obviously. Well, I mean,
1: yeah, it was, it was, you know, Wendy came in in 83. Yep. That famous First Avenue show, I believe, was like her first. But they big were game.
0: jamming before that. They were all friends. Oh, I mean, Savannah. Lisa
1: had been in the band. Bobby had been in the you know the band. Uh, Bobby being David Z's brother, you yeah. know, So he had been around since like nineteen. I think they were friends since the seventies. Oh wow. Um, and then you know Brown Mark came in later. Wendy came in, in eighty three.
0: Yeah, because Bobby Z was friends with Owen Husney. Right. Yeah. yeah. Whoever Prince kind of had his eye on at the moment was. The star of the show for that time,
2: probably. Yeah, absolutely. He played God. Yeah. I mean, I mean I, he, yeah. No, go ahead. I was just say I re- I do remember the first time that a bunch of people came in to this room, and I and it was before we went over to two, and that was, I think, on a Sunday because I finally had a day off. He wasn't going to work. And they called you in. Eight in the morning, (laughs) I get a call from the studio manager. Prince is on his way, and he's bringing a band. Uh, Freaking out. First of all, I didn't live that close. Yeah. And he's on his way. What's this band? We've only had one mic up at a time so far. So I come down. I go to the mic locker. I just grab a bunch of mics. (laughs) It's like... You know, the things I would use on drums, guitar, you know, piano, whatever. A whole bunch of mics. And I just start setting them up. And I'm not here more than a few minutes. And people start walking in. And it's Sheila setting up a drum set. Prince comes in. He's setting up to play bass. And it's like right here. And he's over there. And Wendy and Lisa... So we have keyboards, we have guitar, and then uh, Jonathan
0: Jonathan Melvin. on that piano, Andy's brother,
2: and yes. David. Her the, Coleman Coleman Lisa's yeah. brother is over there doing percussion and Indian instruments of all kinds. Like sitar, Coleman. right?
1: Like some kind of
2: sitar. Yeah. yeah, yeah, sitar and Coleman's finger cymbals and yeah. all kinds of stuff and. I'm like, and so, you know, I'm still setting up mics. He goes, uh, go roll tape. Uh, it wasn't even that. It's just, you know, one word always, roll tape. Uh, okay, 15. I s- said, it's not a line for 15. It's only a line for 30. Doesn't matter. Right. So I go in there and I roll tape. And I still haven't finished setting up the mics, but they're like already playing. God, you know, feel like, the anxiety. You know, like, <laughs> You know, following them around almost. And so I put it in record, and because he wanted to go for like 30 minutes and Do you have an assistant helping you? or Nobody. Oh, nobody's here. Nobody's even here. You know, I can feel your Sunday. anxiety all these years yeah, yeah. later. I can still feel it like <laughs> right? while you're telling the story. Yeah. And so I put a cassette in also. Somewhere I still have it. Somewhere. Oh, they jammed for like 20 over. minutes. And, I fi- and so in the first three or four or five minutes, even after I finished setting it up, I'm still like adjusting the mic pre's and the faders and turning EQ. And like, was, uh, I think it probably never got used for anything, but uh, it was crazy.
1: So now what you're describing sounds like around the world in a day.
2: It's what oh. it ended up being. Yeah.
1: Okay. That makes sense. It
2: ended up because that, that segued into just a week or two later of David Coleman getting this room for a day for free as a birthday present. And oh, he great. and Jonathan come in, and we record all day long and mix it in the evening. And he's doing all this Indian kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and that was the beginning of Around the World in a Day. He ended up you know, working on that. And then he called me and said, hey, you're actually going to use the song on the album. It's like, well, you know, redone. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's crazy.
1: I believe I've heard that original version, you know, and then it became oh, yeah. the
2: album version, yeah. I, they might not have even been vocals on It was like on. a jam yeah. session, yeah. 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 yeah.
0: So or he like, would come in, and you'd know about 10 minutes before what you're even working on. You'd just be like, set up a mic here, do this, bass, something, and then you're just going, and then the next day it's something completely different. It's like a nightmare. Five, six weeks, whatever (laughs) you want. I mean,
1: Prince is the (laughs) New York city of artists, right? They say if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. If you survive a prince session and end up doing a month, that means you're really fucking good at what you do, you know? And that and especially that guy had no patience. I mean, if you mess something up, you're out. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's about
2: twenty nine days longer than I thought it was gonna last. Wow.
0: But um, so amazing that you got to experience that when you know it just happened to be that Peggy was gone and you weren't even a, f- a head engineer at that time and you worked with.
2: I the just the happened best to be the guy that yeah, yeah, wasn't as busy. You went from picking
1: up famous famous cookies to <laughs> engineering like some of the greatest songs of all time by anyone, not just Prince,
0: just by anyone. Did you have an assistant at any point for that that month with him? Is somebody else that would remember anything? I don't think so. It was just you. That's a lot of work, especially yeah. with him. David Z. said that after he had kind of got tired of Prince and moved to Memphis for House of Blues Studios, David Z. Rifkin. Mm-hmm. And he was doing interviews at labels, and he said, if I can work with Prince, I can work with anybody. And that's no more true than really? what you're telling right now as well. Yeah. What kind of uh, mics, was Prince always the Neumann U47 when he for would do vocals? vocals? Yeah. yeah, That was it. Nothing else. And we have that mic and Matthew, you know, the setup over the...
2: API console right in there. Would he cut all vocals in there? Well, when I worked with him, he didn't cut any vocals in there. He did it on the floor out here and I knew how he did it in there and the mic might've already been in the room. But if it wasn't, I went and got it when he was going to do a vocal He set it up like right there and he wear headphones and had the music maybe in his hand and needed the lyrics. And it was a little nerve-wracking. This might have been the most nerve-wracking part of the month because I think she basically, Peggy, basically left him alone. He sat at the console, and he could control the levels. He could start, stop, rewind, everything. Yeah, he runs the tape machine, too. Yeah, he doesn't have any control out here. So it's up to me. And I was really, really good at running a tape machine. Uh Uh-huh. Punching in, punching out on a syllable, you know, I could do that stuff because I'd been working just not on this kind of stuff. And so he would uh, he basically, basically say, play, and you do this, he's going to record. And then he'd do this, stop. So you got to be looking at him. And then he'd rewind, he would say, rewind, and he could hear. The tape, that faint sound, because the lifters have lifted it away. But there's that faint sound, and stop. Punch play. You say play, and then punch in. And he was like a measure in front of where he wanted to be every single time. And then he'd punch in a part. He would
0: never say pre-chorus, second pre, or second pre. Get me there. He would just stop. All right, punch me in.
1: I mean, that's mind blowing. Because a lot of engineers have said, you know, he would put record and we'd have to leave the room when he did vocals exactly you got to watch him record vocals not only record him watch him that's very rare and
2: probably take a year off my life too i'm
1: sure <laughs> i would have taken five years off my life to watch him record a vocal. Yeah, it was pretty Gladly. cool
2: wow it was pretty cool why and he was right here, and he's standing right yep. where we are yeah ladies and Literally. gentlemen
1: studio three sunset sound
2: did you ever see the bed in here? It was, oh yes. No, I wasn't working during that God. time, but you did see it. Uh, it was elaborate. It was like it was like really fancy coverings. It might have been brass. I can't remember. Craig had to go out every Friday and
0: get new sheets, purple sheets. It was once a week that was his duty as a studio manager to go get prints and purple, purple sheets. Purple sheets, nineteen eighty four. Wow, I thought, I thought he was a weirdo too. But the bed, bed was set right and here, York. and. Everybody that came in said the bed was for them. I, the, he got me the bed because he wanted me to sleep and rest. And then Peggy said that he wanted me to sleep there. And but then also I've heard that he was
2: sleeping with girls there. Yeah, it didn't look like a staff seating <laughs> sleeping area to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wouldn't have even gone near it or what? touched it because it looked like it was, was like uh, some. Uh, here know, we here we are again with some religious talk, <laughs> some religious uh, monument or something, you know. But uh, yeah, it was here for a long time too.
0: Yeah, so they didn't like tear it down and set it up when he, it was always. It was just in here. So, the I band... mean, there's
2: plenty of room because he doesn't do that much in the room. Yeah. You know, He'd so.
0: start on the Lynn and maybe he had his, his own drums and stuff would get shipped here. Um, yeah. But also in the vocal booth over there, he didn't use that booth. He put it as a shrine of all this fan stuff. Do you remember seeing that?
2: I remember there was stuff in there. I. Never had the time to even look at it.
1: Yeah, you were just like, I just never vision. had the time.
2: Yeah, I'm sure. You know, if, maybe if I'd had an assistant, I could have had more time to look in there. So, yeah, I don't really.
0: He didn't like the assistants. Even with Peggy, he didn't want anyone else in the room except the person he was directly working with. Yeah. There was never an assistant, which is so difficult. I mean, usually, sometimes you need two of them. Uh, do you yeah. remember what that first session, the date of it was, the month? Was it around Thanksgiving? Was it December 1st? Because I have you on December 29th, 1983. You guys are in this room, just you two, doing She's Always in My Hair, which we got to talk about. But do you remember when you had started? Because then I can kind of look through the work orders and know where you started and ended and what tracks you worked
2: on. I was thinking it was a little before that, Okay, but so just you, a little.
0: Probably mid-December you start with Prince.
2: If not, a little earlier. I mean Come on,
0: Bill. It's only 40 years ago.
2: Yeah. I'll, <laughs> I'll <laughs> so, know the answer in a few years.
0: Twelve twenty nine eighty three. you and Prince are in Studio 3, right where we are, and you cut She's Always in My Hair, but at the time, it was called Sex Shooter, which a lot of people don't know. I didn't even know until Matthew Batone had told me that, because we couldn't find the work order, and I was like, oh, Sex Shooter, that's an Apollonia 6, Vanity 6 track. It's definitely not that, but that was the date it was listed, so then Mr. Batone had let me know what happened, B-tune. but also, <laughs> Batone, what did I say?
1: Batone, like it- I'm Italian, but I am French. Matthew
0: Bittone.
2: I'd just say sorry. this guy. I don't and and I didn't mean
1: to have my puppy with me today, but he was supposed to stay home with
0: my girlfriend, and she got a... Well, he gig, had to make so. the pilgrimage from Malibu to yeah, so Sunset Sound. so first time Sound. at Sunset Sound, Skipper. Mm-hmm. His name's Skipper, which Prince used to, or Prince's mother used to call him Yeah, as that a was kid. his childhood
1: nickname, so he's wow. named after Prince. <laughs> <Our fourth laughs> he didn't guest. have his purple hoodie today, but <laughs> anyway, sorry about that.
0: All good. You. Um, why did he... Do you think he did "Sex Shooter"? The riff for that. I, when I, well,
1: the first time I heard "She's Always in My Hair," and and by the way, it's an honor sitting across from you. You know, having tracked that because I was a kid in Paris, and it just kind of that song blew my mind. And it just, I you know, this music kind of changed my life. Even though all the work I do today is thanks to Prince. I was such a fan. I ended up you know coming to the states and everything <laughs> to follow the music, but i uh was that I your remember, first
0: concert sorry to interrupt you uh
1: no not my first concert but my first prince concert i was 13 in paris 1986 parade tour as the zenith august 25th that was a magical <laughs> night um but she's always in my hair the first time i heard it i was like that's weird he does the little riff from sex shooter mm. so i assumed that song was about apollonia you know because she's always in my hair sex shooter it's and then then you tell me, you know, the uh, the track sheet says sex shooter. I was like, oh, I always knew it. You know, it's like uh, it, it's just a thing where, you know, there's something to it. And then, you know, I know it's been said it's about the songs about Jill Jones. Uh, Prince once told our friend Ruth Arzade, my dear friend who was Prince's assistant in the 2000s, that he wrote it about an assistant that he had who was driving him crazy. So, you know, and that's the thing. I've worked with other rock stars. You know, they will, like, write a song, and it's like, tell somebody that was about you, but maybe it was about somebody else. And So, so who knows? I don't know. <laughs> but the fact that he used that riff always seemed to be a hint at Ooh. something, you know. Yeah. About Apollonia, Apollonia 6. I mean, Susan was in Apollonia 6. You know, who knows? Somebody was always in his hair. And uh, so when you said that it was called Sex Shooter, here when he tracked it i was like that's not a coincidence you know yeah obviously sex shooter was recorded before that so you
0: know but what he did was slow the tape down to make if you listen to sex shooter you'll hear that riff but it's slowed down and she's always in my hair that same exact things and that riff yeah
1: yeah that's "Sex shooter
0: Yes, and that's, yeah. that's what yeah. So I'm it's talking a lot of sex
1: shooter, and she's always in my yeah, hair. Yeah, yeah. Interesting.
0: So it's yeah, it's beyond interesting that he would have these ideas that he would kind of reformulate into other things. Even the title of it was like yeah. What just was the to, date
1: for the? She's always in my hair tracking.
0: Uh, December twenty
1: ninth, eighty three. Right. So sex shooter was uh, April thirtieth, eighty three. So you're like you know six months, mm. but more than six months, eight months later. Yeah. So obviously, it's in his uh, yeah in his, his mind. Realm. It's really interesting.
2: We could ask. Uh, that. Yeah, that was done, as far as I remember, in one day. And he wrote, he wrote it the night before. And he plays all the instruments he on it. He played everything, yeah. and he mixed it, too. And he mixed it. In one day. Jesus. Long day. Did, did he tell you that he wrote it the night before? He came in with stationery from Le Parc with the lyrics on it and was you know, crossing something out or, or looking at it. And so then he, he must have been working on yeah, it. It was fresh. It. Yeah, I, yeah. I think he had to be working
0: on it. That didn't bring any ideas uh, or any pre tracks from it, though. He didn't, hadn't worked on it before. He just came in, started on the Lind drum, and then built it up. That's the way
2: he did it here. Yeah. That's cool, man. I mean Jeez. that's why you know so many songs don't have <laughs> demos because
1: the song is the demo. Yeah, you know, he came in and cut. That's why it always amazes me when you see like you know even in this like uh, Michael Jackson Thriller deluxe editions or whatever you see like. Or with a lot of artists, you see take 23. Like, yeah. I don't think there's ever been a take 10 or five, or you know what I mean? I know of uh, certain songs, uh, sometimes It Snows in April, that has two takes. Uh, How Come You Don't Call Me Anymore has two takes recorded in here, both yeah. those songs, you know. But usually with him, it's because take one, he's telling, if he's playing with the band, like uh, some, uh, sometimes It Snows in April, he's in here with Wendy and Lisa, he's teaching the melody. He's teaching, you know, you hear him saying, wendy or like you know he'll say like when it's your part chorus you know so the only reason there's a take one is he's teaching the band wow. Wow. if it was just him in the room there would be no take one like what you're saying yep. and i think that's something that's very unique with prince you know he th- there'll be things you'll hear of piano demos he's like in his house or hotel room and he's cutting like he's got an idea and he'll record it on a little piano you know or kiss there's a famous demo you know and he's on tour and he records on acoustic guitar that's only because he can't. He's on tour and he can't come into Sunset Sound tonight and have you run over, mm-hmm. you know, so or David Z or whoever. Uh-huh. Um, so I think that's somewhere where, you know he was just absolutely unparalleled.
0: How how can you gauge how experimental he was in here? Or did he did he always know? Well, back to what you're saying, Matthew. I mean, he his idea was if the groove is there, nothing else matters. He didn't care about EQ or changing anything. He just wanted to get it down and that's it. Let's move on. Pretty much. Yeah. From what I know, he the only song he worked more than a day on was When Dove's Cry, which was three days. But even if it took 35 hours straight, he was going to finish that song that day.
1: Yeah, and, and When Dove's Cry, you know, used to have like two extra guitars and yeah. bass and he all these other vocals. Produced and, it. And, you know, so there, there's certain things where I think as much as he didn't ever admit to feeling pressure from labels or caring about pressure from the labels... I think when Duff's Cry is one of those moments where they have this big movie, you know, that he just made, and he needs like you know some some a big single to kick off, you know. Yeah. And I think you know that track is not live in the movie. It's you know it's the, the Apollonia scene, but it's the studio track, and he needed to have something that's like, what do I put that really is gonna like set this tone off, you know? Let's go crazy. It was already done, you know. So I think. When thus cry, I can understand why he spent three days on it and way overproduced it, and then w- presented it to Al Magnoli, you know the director and the the Warner Brothers people mm-hmm. and Mo and Lenny and all those guys, and they probably were like, okay, I, you know, I mean, there's a famous story about the, I think it was Lenny Warner. Somebody said, "This is a great song it's got too much going on, you know, and he got all pissed off, and you know came back here. And mixed a version that didn't have bass, didn't have those a couple extra guitars, and you know took out some vocals, and then there it is, the number one. You know,
0: has anyone work. heard the other version, the fully produced one?
1: I may have. I'm, I'm not saying <laughs> I have, people but people have. have. It's I, I, you know, there's tapes out. It there. It exists. Okay, there's no. I don't think it's out. It's definitely not out there, but it exists. I mean,
0: do you remember? Was that Ted Templeman that said that to him? Warner I'm Brothers not, VP Van Halen producer. I'm not
1: sure. I thought it was Lenny Warnerker. Okay. Uh, but, and I, I like, I, I've had COVID twice. So, COVID fog is a real thing. I'm forgetting certain things. But wow. I did have dinner uh, with Lenny Warker before COVID, and we were talking about some of these stories. And I do believe that came from Lenny, and, and that uh, Prince was all pissed off and came back in here. And then the next day, basically called him and said, Okay, you were right. You know, and then they, they had this
0: hit single. There's oh. a story about Ted Templeman. Uh, he pissed Prince off. So then Prince went and used his office at Warner Brothers and would go over there and use it as a listening room. <laughs> and he just took over his office and just that was his hangout spot. He's like, that's really funny.
2: Because who's going to run him off? Yeah. I mean, it was just,
0: <laughs> it's in Templeman's book too, which is amazing. I, I got to read that. Oh, oh you haven't? Mm-mm, I've yeah. read it. He's read it too. Okay. Paul, uh, we, I have a copy actually here, a couple I'm of them. Check it out. Yeah, it's good. Uh, and she's always in my hair, obviously, the identifiable flanger sound. Kind of circling back around. Is that a flanger pedal or is that the tape machine? I'm
2: almost positive it was a pedal. So it was a guitar pedal. Gotcha. Like a mutron or something like that, most likely.
0: Was the snare gated to a ghetto blaster
2: or SM sixteen? <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're asking him for all the secrets there.
0: Do you remember that? Uh
2: plead the fifth. No, I I
0: Do don't know, Was know. it like the white noise of a ghetto blaster that get that I Well, it would be
2: the Lindrum, too. I don't think there was any white noise being triggered for that. Gotcha. That's Uh, a yes. It's um, hard to say.
1: Now, While we're on the subject of Prince, can I ask a question? Of course. Um, So it's January 1984. You're in here. Prince and Morris Day. And they cut a song called Tricky, or also known as Ode to Tricky. Can you talk about that?
2: Uh, yeah, so
1: because that's a great great song It's a side <laughs> to jungle love uh, in, in a form, you know, there's been a couple of versions, but let's talk about the version. Yeah you know, uh, you We had
2: been working in here and at this point we had moved to studio two and I had been recording Prince playing drums in the performance area of two so the drums were set up and and uh, And I remembered he really wanted me to get the mics close to the cymbals. He said, you know, get that greasy sound. I'm like, okay. I mean, they were like this far away from the cymbals, you know. I usually, you know, have them pretty high. Uh, And so what happened is Morris came over. And they said they were going out. So Prince says, I'm pretty sure this is what he said, we're going to see Peter Gabriel and we'll be back later, which could be anything. But luckily, sometime after midnight, they came, and it wasn't but maybe 1 or 2 in the morning. And I could hear them from the time they hit the metal gate out there and got buzzed in. <laughs> they were laughing hysterically, both of them, and just saying all this stuff. And I I didn't even know what they were saying. And they come around the corner into control one with two and they're still laughing they're almost crying they're laughing so hard and and he was there and he was wearing that little stinky jacket he wears all the time and he's like what are they talking about and it's and they they, he goes let's go we're gonna record and I'm like okay so like now he's talking in whole sentences to me this is good you know and so I go out there and of course uh Morris is on drums and he's left-handed so he moves the drums around. That means I got him into the hi-hat over here. I got to swap the mics. And they're already like jamming, you know, because I've plugged them into a, his precision bass into a DI and he's got it in the headphones prints. And, uh, and, and they're like playing along. And I can tell I can't do, this is like the first day, you know, like any day we've had before where you, know, you can't do it fast enough because they're ready to go. And, So I go back in the control room, and uh, they're going... So they finally stop and let me hit hit record, and they play this song. And if you've heard it, it's just like they're like saying stuff. They're cracking up. They're stopping, starting. It's very raw, just kind of drums. And
1: they got the pimp voices. Yeah. You know,
2: know, and... uh, it's because Yackety, yank my ass,: motherfucker. They had <laughs> seen somebody at the concert and maybe talked to him, and they had this idea to record the song about him, And that's, so that's what that was all about. And we stayed there in the room until we finished it, ending up with uh, putting sound effects from a vinyl I found in the shop <laughs> to a toilet flush at the end and the women's room. It had to be the women's room.
0: That's what he said, because the pipes, right?
2: At around this time, I was also working with Stevie Nicks, either in here or in there. If, if they were in one room, she was in another for a little period. And so, talking about the women's bathroom, this was after this, a few weeks. He comes into Studio 2, and it's just me in there. Nobody's in there because... It would start with a whole bunch of people. I mean, it might be Mick Fleetwood, it might be Tom Petty. It's, uh, the actual engineer uh, was there, but he would a lot of times just like go hang out in the lounge and whatever. They, one, one day they ordered food three times and I ordered, but I never got to eat it because they would all go eat. So somebody had to keep working, you know. So uh, it was a moment where I was in there by myself. And Prince comes walking in. Where's Stevie? What, what, what do you mean? Where's Stevie? She's in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> he runs over to that bathroom, and she's in there alone. It's late at night, <laughs> and, the, and the stall door's shut. And I could hear him all the way back in the control room. He yelled her name as loud as he could and <laughs> banged on the door. Can you imagine? Whoa. Like two in the morning or something? Three in the morning, I don't know what it was. He, like scared the shit out of her. Scared the sh- She screamed. <laughs> he was just was laughing. Can... Yeah. I mean, 100%. He, he was just laughing, and that was like crazy. So he knew that room pretty well. So I guess that's how we knew how the pipes were going to sound at the end of the song. <laughs> Amazing.
0: Is that kind of, so Stand Back, we figured out, it was at A&M, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. He basically, you know, the, the, I mean, that's a story she's told about she heard Little Red Corvette Wrote "Stand Back," stealing "Little Red Corvette," and then she kind of felt funny about it, so she contacted him and said, "Hey, I'm stealing your song," and he's like, "If you're going to steal my song, let me come play on it." And he came and you know played keyboards and all that, and kind of rewrote the melody and yeah. um, so. But yeah, that's that was at A and M.
0: Can you set the record straight on something? Let's kick back to 20 minutes ago. The glamorous life <laughs> during all that tracking. Did you ever see Arrow in this room working on that song? I didn't see her working on the song. And we want to, you know, this show's about factual information that happened at this studio, and the engineers and producers are the ones that know. Uh, even the artists don't tell the truth sometimes, but I want, I,
2: nobody has <laughs> said You know, I don't sure. know, you know, I worked for a, a probably a couple of weeks on that particular record. Sure. But you did Glamorous Life. You cut Glamorous Life. Yeah. and But, you know, there was a time where... Maybe she co-wrote it with him at somewhere else um, yes that's probably what happened <laughs>
1: <laughs> and your name's on the back of the album cover that was rare in those days right it was very rare nobody did that it
2: was, it was very, cool for you right it it was very cool. was, I mean, yeah, especially when you're yeah. an assistant getting cookies
0: and there's then. also yeah. a,
1: a guy named larry williams not the photographer larry williams the sax player larry williams yeah. on that session he was supposed to be quite a character i never met him but i don't know if you have
2: you one. know i i didn't record that because okay. uh after just a couple of weeks uh, I think I maybe moved over to Stevie for a little bit or something. What was she working on then? Sorry to interrupt. Um, Do you remember? The album that came out in 1984, I guess. Okay. I, I think it was platform. called Rock On or something like that.
0: I'll look it up. Continue on, though, please. And,
2: yeah, so... Uh, what were we talking about exactly? Oh, I was saying
0: Larry Williams.
1: It's funny because Larry oh, yeah. Williams photographed a glamorous life. He shot Purple Rain, oh, no uh, Ice Cream Castles, which you worked on Ice Cream Castles as well. So there's a little. So it's like a little bit there. here and there. Yeah. Because yeah. that's, again, he's doing all these projects you know, pretty much at the same time.
2: But I remember when he had. So a few weeks later, when Peggy's back, and so maybe three, four weeks later after we're done, I see him. Walking very quickly towards the gate and out, and getting in his rolls and taking off, and he had Prince, yes, Rolls Royce, yeah. Did he have
0: rolls? Yeah, I've heard of that Rolls. It was
2: slightly no. purplish, not I thought it was deeply. BMW. I that was
0: later, okay. That was after Purple Rain. So he, he had crazy. a
2: quarter inch roll of tape in his hands, uh-huh. uh, and he was like very determined. He was just out and drove off. So you know, Peggy comes walking out because you know. He's not there, so she's hanging out. I said, where was he going? He's, he's just taking the Sheila E. record to Warner Brothers oh. to let them hear it, and apparently sold it to them.
1: Yeah, because I don't think Warner Brothers knew no. he was recording a Sheila E.
2: album
0: for Warner Brothers. No. He kind of he, It was them. out of his yeah.
2: budget, basically, yeah, yeah, for yeah, what yeah. he was doing. He just put it in.
0: There was a lot of crazy stuff, even with the Van Halen things. When you look at the work orders, you can really see what they did, but a lot of times they'd name things different stuff because they'd want to get free tracking on other bands and a lot of demo work. And yeah, uh, The Stevie Nicks 1984 album she was working on was Rock a Little. That's it. Jimmy Iovine produced that. Yes. Well. Shelly
2: Yakus was the engineer. Uh, but what would often happen is, uh, as I mentioned, of all those meals that I missed because they would just go hang out and there was still somebody that wanted to record. And so I ended up doing a a lot of the engineering, but certainly not all of it. If Stevie was singing, Shelly was doing it, except the only difference, the exception is, so all these people were in here hanging out and for whatever reason, uh, and her little entourage trained it, followed her around. And I know we're segwaying in Stevie a little bit here, but, uh, so around two, she wouldn't arrive till midnight, even though we always started at seven. Every single day, I had to be there at seven. We waited four hours. She would come at midnight. By two o'clock, Jimmy would leave. You know They were dating too. I, they might not have been at this point. I can't remember. Maybe they were. Yeah, who he would leave. And then about five in the morning, Shelly, the engineer, would leave every day. And then Stevie, she just woken up, you know, at 11 or whatever. She didn't want to leave. So till about seven or eight in the morning, however far we could go, there might've been a session coming in. It was just me and her. And she would play the keyboard parts that they wouldn't let her play. And maybe do a little bit of vocal stuff here and there. And, uh,
0: maybe a little cocaine
2: too. (laughs) I didn't see any of that, but, uh, when I was back working with Prince, he says, so you work with Stevie, huh? Yeah. You know, um, they took that song of mine and I had a really tough sounding with guitars and everything. And they put all these wimpy keyboards on it and <laughs> softened it up.
1: Talk <laughs> about stand back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've heard that too. A Why'd couple
2: they of- do
0: that at A&M? Why would they have done it here? here? Is all crazy? It's, you know, Universe. probably
1: the producer. I mean, mm-hmm. You know, that's happened a lot. Prince has given songs to, like yeah. one of the greatest Prince uh, songs, song called Five Women," and it's from like the Diamonds and Pearls era, and beautiful piano ballad. He gave it to Joe Cocker, and you know, Joe Cocker could have just recorded his vocal over the Prince track which is which is kind of what you want and what happened you know a lot of great songs now with Sinead O'Connor it worked like nothing compares to you somehow they recut it completely it was just masterful but unlike Joe Cocker you listen to it it's like uh Kenny Rogers you're the one you know you're uh, uh you're my love and it's like again man Prince's version is so amazing they went and recut it all kind of cheesy you know that happened a lot and so, I, you know, stand back, I love stand back, but I could hear mm-hmm. Prince saying what you're saying because when you hear some of the stuff, you're like, oh, yeah, that's not the way he would have done it, you know, if he had the final mix. Would, that,
0: would he take that as insulting when people recut it? I'm sure. They, oh, yeah. I, I'm sure,
1: yeah. yeah. What's the, he'd be like, what, you have Prince playing instruments on your <laughs> track and you're recutting them?
0: You uh-huh. know, that's never a, a good look. This is a very tough question, but we have three echo chambers here and they're distinctively sound different. Did he ever say which one he
2: preferred or he could care less? That is a good question. And I don't remember a preference. Yeah. Well, I mean, we could probably,
0: Chamber One's so bright.
2: I, I, it almost never was, probably was never Chamber One it's because three. also if somebody was working in the control room, you know, we tended not to take that if they wanted to use it. I mean, you could.
0: The one that's assigned to your studio. Yeah. Gotcha. So,
2: uh, cause you can patch in. You from can, anyone. you can, yeah. but a lot of times we wouldn't, or we'd let them know in case they're like turning the monitors all the way up. And you know, maybe some people would open that door. Hey, what's in here? You know, you don't know if somebody's using it or not. So I think probably it definitely was not one. It, it seems like it was two. Gotcha. Really? But I'm not sure.
0: Yeah.
1: Having worked on those sessions, was there any other artists that you ever worked with who worked like he worked?
2: No. no.
1: That's awesome. I've never heard a yes to that answer, I mean, to that <laughs> question with anyone I've ever asked that.
0: Nope. If, if you're alive, you're making music was his motto. And I, I always wondered why. I mean, Hollywood Sound, the board goes down, he comes over here just on a referral and never been here, and then just worked out of here and even sheila e and jimmy jam terry lewis everyone just the amount of work they did in here every single day when they were in l.a well, you mean, a
1: testament to he built a whole studio to be close to home copying this this actual room you yeah. know
0: have you been to studio b at paisley oh yeah a bunch of
1: times yeah, yeah. i know you've been to paisley huh? I, I was think. just there again recently sadly you know the last two times he was gone but yeah but three times but yeah
2: well this room was fairly unique and, you know, I, it might be partially because, you know, this was not a performance area. So they have that fairly large room beside the control room. And that was the only performance area because they were doing overdubs and mixing in here. Yeah. And... 78, they blasted through the... Well, so, so, yeah. So you've got that room and this room, which sounds amazing. And you can control it a little bit if you want, with the sliding the panels and a room for the piano where you can just completely close it off and have drums playing and record. But the other, I think one of the things that really attracted him to staying in this room is the lounge is
0: huge. And the bathroom.
2: The bathroom is right there and nobody's really coming in and using it, especially if they know he's here. And it's, he's got his own door to this whole kingdom here. And the other rooms, you, you know, two kind of opens up right to the basketball court. People can See what's going on, hear what's going on. One, you got to go by the office and come out. And this is more, more of a private bungalow.
0: Everybody said they. I mean, I talked to Van Morrison's guitar player the other day, and he told me that he would see Prince out there all the time, and just he'd be shooting baskets. Was oh, he playing with when you worked with? Oh, him? Oh yeah. Or? Even when you weren't working with, you were still around here. Did oh, you yeah. talk to him after that month and just run into him, be like, hey, P? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Nobody Not exactly. He would look at you sideways I think if you anybody wouldn't want, was like, what's challenge up? Challenge him
2: in basketball right. or a horse. Yeah. You know, or whatever you wanted to call it. He was uh, you know amazing at bouncing it off the wall like everybody does now and getting sinking it into the basket.
0: So you work on Glamorous Life, She's Always in My Hair, which was called Sex Shooter and Ice Cream Castle. And Ice Cream Castle. Do you remember anything from the ice cream castle session? Yes. Please. Let's just put it in.
1: Uh, context ice cream castles the time uh, purple rain album basically the companion album to purple rain Ah. as was apollonia six
2: on that album what i mainly remember is we would start a song like he always did lindrum no code being recorded just setting the tempo hit and play. If you wanted to put a pause in, he hit stop, waited the amount of time, hit play again, and it was usually a two-bar beat that just repeated, and he'd manually play in the tom. So it was like it was a, the whole thing was a performance, which I'd never seen that because the whole reason a lot of people started using it is because they could program things and get it perfect. But his was, was just that loop, and everything else was just thrown in. So he'd put that down. You take the oberheim OB eight and play a synth part, then he play either a OB bass part or like use a precision you know, depending on what was happening and So the whole time we're doing this when we first started working on the time, uh, Morris is laying down on a couch on his back with a legal pad and a pen and so we put down the drums and Prince says, what you got? Uh, it's got a little bit. And Prince would actually walk down there. I saw the legal pad, just had the title. He's supposed to be writing the lyrics. Right. So, but on the synthesizer.
0: Was that lounge what? couch in there? That's where he was laying? Yeah, down? he's
2: on that couch and just yeah. right up against the console, the back of the console. Play That's another. couch right there? Control well, room kind but, of. well okay. we're, we're in okay. two at this point. Okay. Oh, it's the same a... kind of thing. There's a couch yep. there. So, we're, yeah, we're in two. And, uh, all right, what you got? Uh, you look at it again. It's got the title. Then we put on the next part, you know, the bass. Keep working, keep working. He says, you know what? You're not going to make any money if you don't write the song. <laughs> And I'm getting finished here, you know. So we pretty much finished the music, and it's just the title. So Prince says, Give me that. And he went over to the little producer's desk at the end, and just as fast as you could write, he just wrote out the song. Just amazing. Ice
1: Cream Castles, for those who don't know, I don't know if you know, uh, is an ode to Joni Mitchell. From the song Both Sides Now, which she's, you know, it's part of the lyrics, Ice Cream Castle. I think so, you Absolutely. Yeah, he was a Joni fanatic. Wow. Stevie, Joni, Barbara Streisand, those like his three favorite, you
0: know. Stevie Nicks was. He oh, loved, yeah. adored he Stevie. he
1: loved Stevie Nicks, yeah. I mean, as you were he loved her enough to run into the bathroom and scare the <laughs> shit out of her.
0: <laughs> Holy cow.
1: But I think yeah. Joni was ultimately, you know, his favorite huh. singer
0: that's mind-blowing did he work with her ever or do anything together? uh they tried to pair him he together. wrote a song yeah
1: and she didn't want it oh the emotional pump she didn't like it i actually sat and talked with Joni once and i asked her about it and i thought she was you know she's Joni mitchell um and she said <laughs> she said to me because i was you know like the super fan i had the bootleg you know of the song and all that mm. and i said oh i love that song she goes oh it was just you know he sent me this song, it was a silly little song. There's no way I was going to sing it. You know? <laughs> it's just the way she was like, but she was like, oh, but he was brilliant. And I, I thought, you know, she was basically saying for how brilliant as he was, she thought he was written something deeper and, you know, more Joni Mitchell sounding and he was, you know, trying to do something. You know, it's from the sign of the times era. Uh, so it was kind of funny hearing Joni, you know, just kind of That's say that. legendary. But. And you know he had been front row at her shows since before his first album. You know she was she was telling oh. me stories about him. She did her first oh.
0: record here in Studio One. That's why with, right, with Crosby. David Crosby, yeah. Wow. And he was here a month ago in Studio Two doing his latest record. He's, wow. And then Neil came in right after. <laughs> I'm in the same room too. Really? Yeah, with Nico Bolas. and uh, what were they working Nico. on, Fruk? I don't remember. Um, I think they're mixing his like. 25th anniversary something pretty yeah it's 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 exciting when you have like a picture of david crosby and joni mitchell sitting at a piano kissing on each other in 1965 and then it's 2022 and you know he's got a story just meeting joni david's back in with his son doing a record who was um
1: and by the way prince you in the early records if you look at the thank yous the special thanks—it's—it's it's usually like God, Joni, and you. Huh. Like he always had Joni in the thank yous and God. It's like that's he equated her.
0: What was the song that he loved, but from Joni? Do you remember him talking well, I mean, about? Well,
1: he, he—he—he sings uh, "Help Me, I Think I'm Falling" in the ballad of Dorothy Parker. You know, it was Joni singing "Help Me, I Think I'm Falling." You know, so that we know he loved. But um, "Ladies of the Canyon" was, I think. From what I've heard, you know, one that he played.
0: Had you ever seen him live? No. That's crazy. Peggy never saw him live till like ten years later. And she went to Austin and she's like, Oh, now I get it. <laughs> That's funny. She he was rough on Peggy. Was he rough on you or just, just didn't talk?
2: He mostly just didn't talk much. But by the time we were doing uh, you know a few weeks into it and we'd moved to studio two and more people were coming and he was he, he had kind of uh, lightened up a bit yeah. you might say so I felt I was feeling comfortable with him after just a few weeks
0: do you remember uh, what kind of drums he was playing on no really it wasn't a Ludwig set or you have no idea could have been do you remember who was in on that session in studio two with Morris and everybody
2: well, it was really just Morris and Prince. There were other people in the room but nobody else was doing anything but hanging out. Gotcha.
1: So on Ice Cream Castles, so this is interesting to me because I know the first two...
2: Which I didn't get any credit on, by the way. Oh. Shacker. That sucks.
1: <laughs> uh, shock, yeah. Um, on the first two-time album, you know, the time, what time is it? Basically, you know, Prince record, especially on the first album, I think it's like, everything is him and then morris came and did vocals you know was ice cream castle is basically the same thing where he played everything and then morris did vocals as far as you remember Yep. Yeah, because that's that's something people don't really talk about enough. Is is you know a lot of people will say, "Yeah, I didn't get credit for like you just said," you know, and it happens so much, which sucks. A lot of times, it's like some A and R guy forgetting to put, you know, what I mean. Right. It's not sure. Prince going, "Don't credit this guy," but you know, yeah. I've seen this mistake enough times. Somebody's like, "Shit, I forgot," to, you know, put Bill Jackson's name or whatever. But one thing that uh, Prince did a lot of is give people songwriting credit for songs that he wrote. And also give musician credits for musicians who didn't even play on the records, which is really strange. Like Madhouse, you know, the jazz uh, project that he did with Eric Leeds. It's just him and Eric Leeds, but you look at the credits all these musicians that were never there. I think a bunch of the names are made up. Uh, <laughs> on the time, same thing. It says, you know, all these guys are playing their instruments, which they did live, but the yeah. album is all prints. Background vocals, clearly you hear that it's him, but on the record it'll say somebody else. I think that's kind of an interesting, uh, also unique quality.
2: You know, that, well, he that. knew, you know, exactly what he wanted to do and how to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, it was effortless for him to do what yeah. he did, and you know, every now and then they kind of joke, "Yeah, we got the formula." You know, we know how to do it. He just knew what to do. Right. If it was the time, if it was Sheila or whatever, he would maybe move it just a little bit mm-hmm. in that direction, and you know, that was it.
1: Were you sitting with him when he would listen back to things and do you have any memories of his reactions uh, excitement or calm or this is totally normal that i just wrote and recorded she's always in my hair <laughs> you know yeah that's just never like, saw any amazing. kind of re-
2: emotion just, about yeah that's amazing. the music itself right yeah it's just normal this is what he's, what he did what he did yeah Punched think, in, punched out. Matthew, right. do
0: you think he had low self esteem? I mean, he, he no. walked around like he was God, but you do think not. down inside of himself he thought he had small man syndrome or any of that kind of stuff. I going think on?
1: I, I actually don't think so. I think he he might have in the early days. You know, he might. You know, they made a lot of fun. You know, everybody made fun of him as a kid and all that. They and made fun so of little, him here. All the time. I mean, people would make fun of him. You know, till the end. But the Toto guys, I think he proved it with you know the women he he was he was dating the musicianship you know i mean i you know i once walked into a show he did uh, uh actually the, the first time i met him i was told like don't stand up because you're so tall you know like so he definitely had a complex. first thing i did of course um, you know i was raised that way i get up and shake your hand i'm not gonna like go like this you know but you know he definitely had a thing about like tall people uh, handsome men being around you know there's all these stories about, you know, he just wanted to be the guy. But I don't think it's as much as insecurity, you know, because he was so badass and he was so talented. He knew. I mean, he like you said, he knew Ooh. exactly what he was doing. Like, you know, he he would someday could treat somebody like total shit, you know, puts you in your place, you know. I remember, like, one of the weirdest things for me personally is, like, I'd see him somewhere. maybe would be, like, super nice, handshake, how you doing, blah, blah, and just whatever, and then, like sometimes I'd be like, "Hello," and he just kept walking as if I wasn't there. I'm a big dude, you know, and it's just like, "Wow, that's and and he usually if it's, I'm with like a friend or a girlfriend, somebody who's pretty, he would do that. Like, <laughs> oh, I'm not giving him that satisfaction of knowing me. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> <That's> great. <laughs> it's like that Don Rickles Sinatra story. You know, <laughs> it, it's just like oh, I'm not
0: going to give him that.
1: You know, so that you know that that happened, uh, you know, a lot. So I think. I don't think so. I don't think he was insecure in that way.
0: Do you remember little things? Well, one, I got I to ask you about the guitar solo on She's Always in My Hair. Was he on a Telecaster, you thought? Yeah. you remember that? It was a Telecaster. Where was he stationed in here? Um, Just in the live room? Or did you put him in ISO? Where was the amp?
2: For that, um, I believe he was in the control room for that.
0: So he'd have his amp blaring in the live room and he'd sit in there. God,
2: I fucking knew it. And sometimes he... That's the best way to do it. He might even do something direct. Really? You know, and just put a pedal on it. But not... I'm just saying sometimes on some parts, you know. But like for a solo, he was, he was going through an amp. It was probably a rented amp from down the street. Yeah. And, uh, or he just had his gear shipped. Yeah, and... he didn't always want to be out there uh, when there was loud noise like that. Yeah, I don't, You know, I don't Did he think... eat anything when you were with him, or was it just the coffee and twenty sugars? It's funny. I don't remember him ever eating. Nobody does ever.
0: He was just terrified of being fat, ever or anything, because he had fat family. I don't think he
1: could him. be fat if he wanted to, really? but I, I just, I just, it's that thing of like he just wasn't going to give people. <laughs> I saw him eat once in Rome. Really? Uh, Yeah, I went with uh, with uh, Lenny. We had a show at the same arena. Lenny was performing the day after Prince, so I like begged Lenny to leave a day early on the bus from Paris to like go see Prince, you know. And and we did have dinner in his suite after it. I remember him, you know, he was having you Prince and Lenny Kravitz and Craig Ross, his guitar player. It's his birthday today. Happy birthday, Craig! Uh, And yeah, a couple of Prince's band members. And we walked in the hotel room. Prince was standing there with his cane playing the show from that night i might have told you the story before he's basically like this is right after the show he's playing the whole tape back to the band this is what you did wrong you came in here too early i mean you know it's like (laughs) three hour show or whatever it was crazy and the band's up there and then we yeah then we actually had dinner with him that was my only time you know uh at dinner and he he, i just remember him having the soup with a little pinky up you know but but yeah he didn't there's not a lot of stories about, uh you know.
0: What's your favorite era of Prince music? The Revolution?
1: You know, it's funny. I mean, I think Around the World in the Day is my favorite really? album. Yeah, Sign of the Times is probably, you know, Parade, Sign of that. It's hard to say favorite because he's evolving in a way that's just so magical, you know. So it's like there's no... For me, it's like till the end you know you realize and and i was guilty of this too a lot of people were guilty he was putting out these records and we're like oh it's not as good as you know parade or blah blah blah," you know and and then like after he passed like you start listening to these things you're like holy shit this is so good like is this just is just his evolution he went into another thing he didn't want to repeat himself like so many artists to keep let me okay this was a hit so let me do that hit again you know let me try this thing and it sounds like exactly the same he never did that as much as labels were like hey do you know tour with the revolution again do this da da da. you know he's like i did this already so yeah. he uh it, it's very hard for me to like i i used to think really around the world in days my favorite because it's Sort of the most experimental in the middle of all this, you know, the night controversy. I mean, it starts with like, you know, Dirty Mind, really. It's like Dirty Mind, controversy. I mean, it starts with Sunset Sound, you know, yeah. Dirty Mind, controversy, 1999, Purple Rain, Noel, Noel in The World in a Day, Parade, Sign of the Times, Love. I mean, it's crazy. Like, who, it's like Stevie Wonder, you know, when Stevie Wonder just had one after the other, yep. one after the other, and then like, you know every artist would thank him at the grammys for not putting out a record that year cuz if you if you put out a if stevie put a record out in the 70s you were not winning a grammy like stevie was sweeping you know so prince i feel like he didn't get that kind of recognition with awards and all that but his output in that time was just you know mind blowing and it's amazing that so much of it happened in here
0: do you think well he found his sound here don't yeah. you think i mean yeah. really after yeah, dirty mind we catch the tail end of controversy when Peggy works with him for the first time and then goes into 1999. He had found his sound. He had these funk riffs. He had these amazing... And he didn't want to sound like anybody else. He never wanted anyone to produce him but himself. Who they try to put him with? Ray Parker Jr.? Well, he did Well, the, uh, for Warner you, Brothers,
1: right? when they signed him, told him they were pairing him with Maurice White from Earth, Wind, yes. and Fire, and he said no.
0: Yeah, don't make me... And he <laughs> didn't want to like, be a black artist, Well, right?
1: that's Lenny Warner. So Lenny's in the sessions of the first album... They were up in like Salcedo or something record like that. Plant. Yeah, the record plant. And David and, Z's there too. You know, and basically the Warner guys are like coming to see how the sessions are going because they're paying for it. You know, and they walk in and you know it's those famous stories. Okay, where's the band? You know, I, I only see one guy. You know, it's like that's the band, and they're like that's not the band. Where's the band? You know, and Prince is like, well, okay, listen to a couple things. You know, and he listens to these things, and it's like. Okay, wow, this is a band, but it's one guy, you know. And then he tells Lenny Warker famously, you know, don't make me black. Like, don't make the mistake of categorizing me as an origins. urban artist yeah. because I'm making music, and it's rock and roll, and it's soul, and it's funk, and it's, you know, everything. And so I think to have those kinds of balls as a young artist. 18 years old. Yeah, you know, signed him when he was 18, 19. You know, he lied about his age a little bit in the beginning on the on the American Bandstand, you <laughs> yeah. know. Uh, I think he was 21 he said 19 but you know he he has those cojones and he's you know that he never lost that you know there are artists who started out very strong and then kind of like got you know defeated by the industry if you will the charts things like that's one guy who definitely did not care about what the label thought of, of his of his music you know to a fault sometimes you know but who, who am I to say that you know he he had the career he had he built his own studios, he built his own empire you know he ended up was the first guy to sell an album on the internet. I mean he the you know, first guy to include an album with concert tickets. I mean he kept rewriting the book he kept rewriting the industry, you know the, the industry book so i mean there 's so many he was such a pioneer the interactive dVD or whatever cd ROm you know all this stuff that he kept doing. Like sometimes seem cheesy to a lot of people, but he he was doing stuff twenty years before what is happening now, you know, and and nobody really thinks about it. I mean, the the thing of musicology tour to include the album with the concert ticket sale was was brilliant. He sold millions of records by just you know selling concert tickets.
0: Was he the one the creative force behind these marketing strategies? Oh or yeah. Yeah, 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 Someone? No, no. Kinda... He
1: you know with the Planet Earth, he put it with the news with the newspaper, you know you got your newspaper in the morning you had an album and somehow he managed to count the sales towards you know soundscan or whatever i mean you know
0: is he the yeah. greatest creative artist ever to you
1: oh, 100% yeah yeah 100% wow. i don't think there has ever been or will there ever be anyone like him there's plenty of incredibly talented uh musicians i don't think you know i don't apply the word genius to many people you know i think that's in this this culture today everybody's a genius you know Oh, this guy is a genius, and this you know just because it's overused. Yeah, it's, it's it's They don't look at the the metrics of talent anymore. They look at the metrics of success and how many uh, uh, views you got on an Instagram post. And you know what I mean? It's like the, the, it's not what to me is the the brilliance of artists like that who can come and play every instrument and bring their friends and produce albums for their friends and make movies that are number one at the box office. And, you know, I mean, it's just completely crazy, but at the core of it is just this musical genius. You know, he's not the only one, but he's definitely unique. And I don't think there's been anybody else like him. You see the amount of recordings he has in his vault. It doesn't even make sense. You know, even passing at 57 years old, you see the amount of music in there. You would think somebody's lived like 300 years and was recording, you know, Five songs a day, so.
0: Did you ever, in the time you spent with him, even not just with him, but was Morris or any, was there ever alcohol around or drugs or anything? Never, never saw it. He didn't even allow it in the studio. That would be
1: very surprising, yeah. I think you'd get fired instantly. If you lit up a joint or something, you'd be out of
0: there. Did you see Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis down here with him ever? No. Really? Did you ever see them when you weren't working with Prince? No. I mean, they spent...
1: Do you remember your last session? Do you remember what it was? Or?
2: Um, yeah, that twenty ninth day or whatever. Wow, I don't really know. I kind of feel like it was not very long after we did the thing with you know when the whole kind of band and the brothers came down. I think that was kind Around of near the, the end. Day stuff. Yeah. And we maybe worked another week or two after that and then at that point it was a little off and on and I don't know what the off was but I was on something else and I was back with him
1: uh, so do you get like separation anxiety after after sessions like that with an artist like that and then just go back to work I'm not saying anybody else is regular you were working with amazing artists but is it like do you kind of like see him down the hall or he's working in the other room and, and like man I, I wish I was working on that session um, or is it too exhausting <laughs>
2: Or both. Well, you know, uh, I mean, he was amazing. He it, everything seemed effortless for him, he, and he did exactly what he wanted to do, and he didn't do what he didn't want to do. And uh, that part was amazing. But I was fine with uh, you know moving on and doing some other stuff, mm-hmm. and letting other people and Peggy get back into yeah, it. Right. Uh, and you want to communicate with artists too, that you can kind of be creative with as well, not just. Be, Before it's you know. not
1: just bass. <laughs>
2: Guitar, drums. <laughs> you Break. know, it was an amazing, amazing part of my life. But uh, there's other things I wanted to do too, and yeah. uh, and I was I was fine with the way it worked out. I had right. my three or four weeks, and went on to do other stuff
1: and then when he walks in the studio in these sessions because this is something funny is coming from me i would normally not ask that kind of question but it just popped into my head is he wearing like his full-on prince outfits and yeah right yeah? he's oh, like yeah. stage he's wearing stage clothes and like he never went out in his sweatpants no, <laughs> or no, no, jeans no. Or, he came like yeah. he's
0: going to a concert even in the studio every single day and i do he mean he ever, i just
2: can't imagine when i first saw him and you know before i worked with him when he was working with peggy and he would show up on the you know in the parking lot with the purple motorcycle and uh it's like how did he get here from wherever he drove from and not just have like a entourage of people following him in right because it was so obvious
1: and would he walk in pretty much alone usually for the sessions or just girlfriends chick
2: might be around but you know if he was on the motorcycle he was alone right did he have chicken 83 yeah yeah yeah,
0: so you saw him here too. Oh yeah, you just be hanging out in the lounge, kind of.
2: Yeah, he wasn't always around, but he was around. I he guess more can't, when can't yeah, yeah, I think the when there of were Chick more was people. Like
0: late '85
1: or something. Yeah, he was with him too. yeah before parade or yeah. like parade session.
0: <clears throat> Real quick, and then we'll move into something else. Uh, he opened up for the Rolling Stones and notoriously got booed off stage. You were here that day, Peggy had said. He came in ready to just. Murder everybody! He was mad. He had one bandana around each knee, one around his head. His shirt <laughs> off, a lace kind of underpants over his ripped jean shorts. Um, had you saw him? Or I saw you, him walking. Okay, in. so you just knew he was ticked yeah. off about something.
2: I didn't know what was going. I didn't even know he had played with the stones. That's how f- out of it I was with what was going on in the world. Sure, I was like not, just working here, media
0: or phones, internet. Uh, like but
2: yeah, uh, he. He did not look like a happy man at that moment coming in. And then Mick Jagger called him or something and got him back the next day. What time? I heard
1: is that, yeah, he, he called him and convinced him to come back again.
0: Because they liked him. The Stones did.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah.
0: Is this at the Coliseum, right? LA Coliseum. Or, the Forum or something? I think
1: it's the Coliseum.
0: Do you have uh, 10 more minutes or you got to go do something?
1: No, no. I was just uh, moving something
0: else. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I tell him it's 30 minutes, it's always two hours. Uh, any more Prince questions? I mean, I, I mean, could you know, sit here talking for 10 hours about
1: it. But I want to actually, I want to hear about what your other favorite sessions were with any of which other artists.
0: Yeah, of course. Well, let's talk inspired. about Van Halen real quick because you didn't work with Van Halen, but they were in here working on Fair Warning. You're a Van Halen fan. You sneak in the room an hour after. I heard you kind of sneaky <laughs> on here. And you kind of were studying how Van Halen were miking things and
2: were how they were working in the room. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I studied everybody from day one in all three rooms. Okay, everything Either, you learned on Van Halen,
0: let's discuss that right now.
2: Well, the only <laughs> the only thing I was interested in uh, because I was recording bands and it was sometimes a nightmare getting a sound on a guitar. You know, do you use two mics? Use one mic? Where do you put it? And so I come in here. Nobody's in here. And the marshal cabinets are just right over there. Seems like everything happens over there. And uh, there's a 57. Two SM57s, There's right? two of them. Yep. One on one speaker, one on another speaker. And I'd never seen exactly that kind of angle and where it was pointed. But I remember it. Okay. Draw that out real quick. No oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to.
1: And you were, not, you, you were not like a Prince fan, right? You didn't really know his material and all that, or you did uh, when you worked with him?
2: When I worked with him, no, I knew almost nothing about right. him. Wow.
1: That's, a, that's really cool to me.
2: Van Halen, I knew more about. Right. Let's say that's a dented speaker, and you've got the cap over the voice coil area, and then all oh, this is the paper. And if you were to take a 57 and put it right there where the paper meets the cap, but on the paper, if you moved it a little closer to the center, it would be pointing at the cap, but it's right there at that edge. And if this is the cone, which will be that angle all the way around because cones are Closer and then they're further away from you in the middle. If that was the cone, you would put it perpendicular to the cone. So it's not going straight into the grill. The cone's like, the grill's here, the cone's like that. So it's like that angle. Wow. And I've never told anybody that. So there you go. (laughs) That's going to go crazy. (laughs) But it changed the way I recorded overdriven or loud guitars. And it always worked. That's amazing. And that's all you had to do. And this is fair warning they're working on. It had they to have were eighty one, right? When at you? This at this point they were doing Pretty Woman, okay, finishing it up.
0: So yeah, before fair, fair warning,
2: yeah, because I think what happened was they did it and it was so great that at that point the record company decided, oh, we got to put on an album. So then they.
0: Well, that's incorrect because they had okay. already finished the album and they needed singles and Ted Templeman wanted the guarantee on this record, so they were like, let's do Pretty Woman. But did it get and on they, the album? They, yeah, well, they had already done the album and then they came in last minute. So I have it backwards. Yeah. <laughs> they wanted a guaranteed hit on that, so they were like, they came in here right off a tour and did Pretty Woman It was the last
2: song on the record. There you they go. Did. I mean, that's I why probab- we do this. I probably, probably this knew that out. and it just reversed it in my mind.
0: We all love music more than anything in the world and these sessions and stories and records and... You know, experiences, they got to be documented.
1: Could I be a total yeah. asshole and ask the total asshole question? Please. <laughs> uh, better guitarist Prince or Van Halen? Oh,
0: shit, there's a gauntlet. <laughs> Drop it.
1: I said I would, it was an asshole thing to ask.
2: But. They're just different.
1: <sighs> Political correctness.
0: Everywhere nowadays. I,
2: they're both amazing. They're both
1: totally different, yeah. Who do you think? Apples and oranges. <laughs> um i actually agree with bill because it's like comparing Bach to beethoven you know what i mean it's just so different yeah. they have such different styles that i wouldn't i just felt like being a dick and asking
0: Prince a dumb question grossly underrated though as a guitarist though. i had no idea until yeah. i worked with him
1: he's, he, he's become you know because of the rock and roll hall of fame that performance while my guitar gently weeps finally people were like oh my god he's incredible you know that's now become the most googled guitar solo in history oh yeah like a so on it. at least you know that that kind of elevated his status as a guitarist but uh, you know a lot of people were like look at this funny dude the way he dressed i can't take him seriously with those boots and you know the ruffle shirts and all that so you know a big part of it was that you know
0: Did he want to kind of have the mystery of people didn't know if he was straight or if he was this? He says in
1: controversy, you know, he says the lyric is "Am I black or white? Am I straight or gay?" Controversy, you know. I I, I, he showed people he was straight with you know the women he was hanging around with. I'm sure he was not uh, trying to leave any mystery, but in the beginning, you know, maybe he. He liked that. He was always androgynous, you know. Yep. His, his symbol that became his name was the mix of the two, you know, men and woman. So,
0: um, one of my favorite tracks, one of the greatest productions ever, sonically, is "Dead Man's, Por- Dead Man's Party" from Oingo Boingo. Now that was tracked at Sunset Sound Factory. Yes. Denny Alfman, who heads up Ungo Boingo. You were the head engineer on that session. I have so many questions. You know, Ungo Boingo, for people that don't know, is kind of ska, punk, uh, rock, so many different elements of it. Originally, they started doing like 50s kind of music, right? They were like a marching band almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, a Prince associate engineer, David Leonard, who did a bunch of Prince work, was the engineer on that. Right. Doesn't get along with Danny Elfman and says, Bill Jackson, I'm
2: out of here. You take over. Was that, were you ready? Were you nervous? Uh, Oh, I was ready. At that point, I wasn't nervous. Yeah. At all. And I had kind of worked with them just in the background being David's assistant on weird science, the single.
1: Yeah. Great. Freaking song.
2: Great. Great song. And uh, they went away and did some strings and they came back and David did an amazing mix on it. Uh, but yeah, he saw me right out here in the courtyard and said, I just told Danny uh, I'm not doing the the album and I told him to use you. Wow. So that was the beginning of everything.
0: Mm. And literally that's, I mean, the production on that and everything that's going on. How many in- musicians and instruments are on that track? 10? A bunch. 12, 15?
2: Mike, I you know it's, You know, horns. It's got to be 15 people. Two guitars. And the thing is, uh, we pretty much tracked everything except the horns live. We didn't keep everything, but the control room was like uh, Danny on a mic, Steve playing guitar, Danny also playing guitar, and their amps are out in the room somewhere. Drums, bass, all going at once. And we we're really just trying to get the drums. Yeah. And uh, later on, we did two or three songs where everybody played at once. And in the studio we were in, there was another little uh, booth, like kind of like a vo- vocal booth behind the control room. And so the horns were in there and we had them all playing at once. And it was crazy. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was uh it was a pretty amazing record, a lot of creative stuff. Um I th- thought he sang his butt off on that. It was great vocals. Uh and John Avila would also sing. He uh you know, got into producing as well as Steve Bartek. And uh they just did what they knew they were gonna do and it was all um pretty much figured out. I've worked on so many records where they're figuring out what they're doing in the studio. Mm-hmm. But you can't the, afford to do that anymore. There was uh, yeah, and there there were so many parts. They just we spent our time just putting all the parts on and making sure they were, you know, the best they could be. Who produced that? Danny. Okay. But I think uh Steve and John the guitarist and bass it. player, I think they also were producers on it. It's funny, that
0: 80s sound, even with the synth stuff and Prince kind of thing, um, is coming back, but even the Talking Heads, Oingo Boingo, that kind of music is recreating right now, even in Billboard, on so much stuff. Even the Lynn Drum, I mean, <laughs> right? you hear that everywhere. They just keep recreating this yeah. stuff. I
2: just want to add that Michael Frondelli did an amazing mix on Dead Man's Party at Capitol. That's where it was mixed? That's where it was mixed. Why did he go to Capitol? Well, Michael Frandelli was like basically running capital from. He was like the you know head engineer, director of the studios there. Yeah. And uh, uh, for whatever reason, I don't know. I don't know what their connection was, but they wanted him to mix it, and he did a great job. It, yeah. it really was. He just took the sound they had and, and enhanced it even more. Nice. Yep. Yeah. Good shout out.
0: What's your uh, most special memory here at Sunset Sound? You did so much stuff here. You worked here for what? Eleven years, kind of ten years. Long time, yeah. yeah. I heard you had a CDL license when you were a runner, so you could stop in loading zones around town. Because <laughs> you is that true? That's true. <laughs> so you got I pick, could park in the yellow. Yes, cause which. How do yeah. I get one of those? <laughs> <laughs>
2: It was great. Then it expired, and I could no longer do that. What but was it, your reasoning for having a CDL? Uh, the true story is just before I worked here to make some money while I was waiting that almost year for them to decide if they could you know, bring me in because of uh, the slight slump in the industry, I got a job as a messenger in San Francisco, talk about a crazy job san francisco crazy well, streets no parking but i had the tag i just went to yellow zone and i could go up deliver a package or the envelope and get back down never got a ticket
0: oh, and then it worked down here and cause... then
2: i didn't have to get rid of it
0: yeah
2: yeah it was great especially because they were building the console for studio one and i was always running i was going to dean jensen to pick up a transformer go into uh some blueprinting place to get you know the fluids they needed or whatever it's just it's always something to do even if it wasn't a client you know with that going on so i was putting miles on the car it was good
0: again uh so what was your favorite session memory experience from sunset sound we're at 60 years now longest running independent studio so much happened here i mean We're in the Prince room, but it's like, that's the Doors room, the Rolling Stones room, the Janis Joplin, the the Van Halen. I mean, it's just endless. You know, Miley's in here now. I mean, everybody just all have these stories. And the engineers, they don't get enough credit ever. Those are the ones that really bust their ass. They get the sounds, they do a lot of work, and they get screwed over a lot of (laughs) times,
2: and they get the least pay. Well, you know, I worked on a lot of things that were just highlights to me and of course, in here in those first sessions, um, were amazing. So they have to be, you know, at the top, you know, as, because I was, you know, trying to figure out how to do what I was doing for somebody that didn't want to hear why I couldn't do it. Yeah, you know, so everything after that was a little bit more relaxed in a way. Uh, but uh, another really favorite. Yeah, we worked in all three rooms on the soundtrack to a film, Little Big League, which uh-huh. most people haven't heard of because I think yeah, Angels in right. Alfield came out around the same time and kind of took the glory, if I have my information right. Uh, Stanley Clark produced it. And the first day was Stanley and I behind a console, uh, Duck Dunn. On bass, Steve Cropper on guitar, wow. Booker on organ with two Leslie's, wow. and and it just kept getting better. We ended up coming in this room. We recorded some Tower Power horns. We went to Studio One, and then it switched over to Stanley on bass and Jeff Beck on guitar. And
1: no Jerry Hay in the house. No. <laughs> it sounds like he could have been there. <laughs>
2: And, and, and a bunch of other people, yeah. Stuart Copeland on drums. And that was pretty amazing, especially uh, because Jeff just kind of sauntered in. And the guy from Fender brought a couple of Jeff Beck models and he played each one for about 20 seconds and said, I'll keep this one, take the other one. And we had rented a vintage Marshall from a guy at SIR, but it was his personal amp. It was like Primo. And it was all the way in that back room, what they called the string room in mm-hmm. Studio One. And I put a mic on it. I put a forty-seven fet on it. And he, you know, he was playing, and I just like turned some knobs. He never, ever went back there to look at the amp. He just played, and he never tuned his guitar for the first day. It was about halfway through the second day. He was, and everybody's like he actually touched the machine head because he would just adjust. It was like the Hendrix thing. It's like it doesn't have to be in tune. He was like adjusting, playing on a film score. Wow. It was crazy. And so just working with all those guys, that was also a, a big highlight for me.
1: And this was throughout the studio?
2: Yeah, we uh, on that one film, we worked in every room. Yeah. Yeah, crazy. That's the movies where the kid... His grandpa grandpa's the, yeah.
0: the Minnesota Twins, and Dennis Farina's in it. And Great music. Yeah. What year was that? 94. Okay.
2: And Alan Sides mixed the record. Holy shit. Yeah. I was
1: going to say, Stuart Copeland did the Wall Street soundtrack. The at Home? Yeah, I don't know if that was where he recorded that. but
0: We've done weird. so many. I mean, we've, T-Bone Burnett used to live here for 30 years. I worked I mean? with him a lot as oh, an assistant. Of course, I'm sure yeah. he did, because he Studio One, he bought the board out of there. That Bushnell he just actually resold it for $650,000 on Reverb. sold in 15 minutes. <laughs> wow. I mean, that board probably costs like 20 wow. grand. I think I have
2: something I want to sell on Reverb. Let you bring it up. <laughs> hey, I, get, I can commission mm.
0: and manage this for you. Um,
2: I think this Cut the microphones. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have a very vintage piece of equipment that I've held onto for a very, very long time. It's older than the old stuff that's here. Really? And that's all I'll say. Spill the beans. Come no? on. Well,
0: there might be somebody listening that wants it or can get a hold of you. The people that would I, pay I what know. I want for it will find it.
1: I would say I don't even know what it is, but I think I have a friend who might <laughs> <interested laughs> come into town next week. Uh,
0: yeah. Well, that's so special that you could come back down here and share some light on these stories and share your experiences. And you still an engineer to this day. You have your own private home studio, correct? Yep. What's the name of it?
2: Uh, Jackson Land. Bill Jackson. Jackson Land. Yeah. I do uh film scoring. A stuff. lot of film stuff. Yeah. I did used to I uh, used to do TV. I kind of stopped doing that except for, you know, documentary films that get on TV, which you know, a lot of them get on PBS. And uh you know, last year did a little documentary short that's nominated for an Oscar. Oh, congrats. We'll see in a couple of weeks. What's the uh, premise? It's it's it? it's uh filmed in Afghanistan over 6 years and it's called Three Songs for Benazir.
1: Okay. I'll
2: check and it out. Uh,
0: Congratulations.
2: Yeah, it's a big deal. Yeah, congrats. Yeah, a very big deal. You're also an Emmy
0: winner for uh, my old neighbor, Doug Ellen, who wrote Entourage. You did sound design. Oh, I know Doug. Yeah, he's been in here. Oh, nice. Yep. Um He used to live in my building in Versailles at Robertson and Burton Way. He was writing I'm Entourage. French, so when you
1: say Versailles, I'm like... You lived in
0: Versailles. <laughs> no, it's a little rundown building in Beverly right, right. Hills on the corner there. But he, actually the first season's film there. Oh, wow. Um, but he was right naturalized when he lived there. I think everybody <laughs> lived in that
2: building at one point. Yeah, I still dabble in music. I'll cut the occasional drum track. I like the way my drum setup is there. And uh, maybe do a little mastering or mixing. But just on the side here and there. No, no major stuff. Do you think that Don Landy should come in
0: and uh, give us an episode for this show?
2: Absolutely. You know, I don't know him personally, uh, but I was around when he was around, and he made amazing sounding records, and from what I saw, just kind of like sneaking in, he made it look so easy. So easy.
0: uh, He might be the greatest engineer ever yeah Um, plus he was just such a an asset to have at the studio he would
2: tell paul and his father Tootie what gear to buy and this is what you need here and Mm. i mean he was very
0: quiet but a badass
2: i walked in once and looked at the channel strip where you write like tom kick and it was just little circles you know like (laughs) alien language (laughs) like the circles that's the toms and then there's like a dot for it's like you know and at that point i can't imagine doing that i you know i would feel like i would need to just look and know exactly what i'm grabbing but he was just so apparently just so dialed in dialed in and calm and great amazing anything else you want to share do you have social media or people can get a hold of you uh best not
0: all right <laughs> matthew batone has the greatest instagram most compelling fun entertaining page ever plus he's working on every cool project ever uh at candy tea man I Never agree.
1: trust Drew when he tells you it's a 30-minute podcast.
0: <laughs>
2: Has it been 30 minutes? No, no. It's been
1: much longer. But, <laughs> Two hours. But, but uh, I'm so glad I came. I'm so glad you invited me. I'm so glad to meet you and be able to share this uh, experience because, that's yeah, great. Know, wow, the work you've done.
0: You were the one Thank there. You. I mean, there's nobody else that works on Glamorous Life. The fact that the you day.
1: recorded Tricky to me is like almost more special than the other stuff. It's just so much fun. Those guys, That's like great. you said, having so much fun in the studio. That's, That's what it's all about.
0: Did you work with the Bodines?
2: Assistant. Okay. Was Kenny Aronoff uh, on that session? I don't think so. You know Kenny? T-Bone was the producer, and I think it was Larry Hirsch was the engineer. Oh, wow. And, I, and we weren't doing any session musicians or anything either. We were just doing overdubs, recording them. Yep. Well, I know who he is, but uh, I don't think he was around when I was on it. Uh, last thing. You know
0: what's so special about this is like the people that come in, Peggy, yourself, uh, David Z, whoever, it's like they don't tell these stories often either. So it's like you guys are the real rock stars. You were there. You got the sounds. You were with Prince, just you two, in such a pivotal point in his life. Like that's the person I want to talk to. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> not the person that tells the same story over and over on 200 podcasts a year like i want to hear the people that have never spoke before so thank you again it's very special for everybody and uh, phil mcconnell who you know his wife's getting a hip replacement but he wants you to come back in a couple weeks when he's here so he can buy you lunch oh perfect <laughs> get free lunch every time we come too i'll take it all right thanks so much guys thank you guys
1: thank yeah. you and skipper
0: <laughs> oh shit we didn't give skipper socials <laughs> he out. stayed
1: pretty quiet